Like a chrysalis, we're emerging from the economy of the Industrial Revolution. An economy confined to and limited by the Earth's physical resources into the economy in mind, in which there are no bounds on human imagination, and the freedom to create is the most precious natural resource. Welcome to the Soul of Enterprise, Business and the Knowledge Economy, sponsored by Sage, energizing business builders around the world through the imagination of our people and the power of technology. I'm Ron Baker, along with my good friend, Bear Sage Institute colleague and co-host, Ed Kless, who happens to be in Seville, Spain. How's it going, Ed? Uh, it's beautiful here in Seville, although it is 10 o'clock at night, but I am energized and fired up and ready to talk with Michael Munger on this. I've been, been thinking about this all day. I know. I'm so excited, folks. We have Professor Michael Munger, who received his Ph.D. in economics at Washington University in St. Louis in 1984. Following his graduate training, he worked as a staff economist at the Federal Trade Commission. Be interesting to talk to him about that. His first teaching job was at the economics department at Dartmouth followed by appointments in the political science department at the University of Texas at Austin and the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. He moved to Duke in 1997, where he is currently the director of the interdisciplinary PPE program at Duke University. He's the author, I think, of six books. I'll have to ask him, but his latest is called Tomorrow 3.0, Transaction Costs and the Sharing Economy, which we're going to focus on today. Welcome, Professor Munger, to the Soul of Enterprise. It's great to be on the show. If Ed's in Seville, then it's almost dinner time at 10 p.m. Another hour, you can go out for dinner, Ed. <laughs> yes, I know. I, I was just talking to a colleague of mine who said that they, she found out that, about this place that opens at 1130. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I hope you had a good siesta, Ed. That's all I can say. <laughs> Holy cow. <laughs> well, Mike, you know, you say that your book... This Tomorrow 3.0 grew out of a conversation with Russ Roberts on Econ Talk in 2014. I'm just, I'm sure we listened to that because we're big fans of Econ Talk, but just curious kind of how it germinated. Well, I often find that when I talk to Russ Roberts, I should say not everyone listens to Econ Talk. It's an economics podcast. I've been on that show 36 times. I think the next yeah. most has been six or seven. So, right. uh, I play Ed McMahon to Russ's Johnny Carson. So whenever he can't, if he doesn't have a real guest, he'll call me. And he said, Mike, this time we're going to talk about the sharing economy. So find out some stuff about that. So I went and looked, and I realized I didn't know anything. And during the course of the conversation, I realized that I knew less and less, which was an advantage. So I didn't understand what it was the sharing economy was doing, what was being sold, and why it was that it seemed to be expanding at such a surprising rate. So I had a puzzle, and since I also have a PhD in economics, I had some things I could work on. It took me a couple of years. I didn't figure out everything, but I really did, I think, learn a lot. This book is my attempt to explain in as simple, possible, simple terms as possible how to think about the interaction between two things. And the sharing economy is really two things. One is people are selling reductions in transactions cost. And the second thing is that we're commodifying excess capacity. Excess capacity is always something we've thought about. We have to be able to store. I don't think that's true anymore. 
excess capacity is modular. It can be commodified, and you can sell off pieces of it. Once you start to think in terms of reducing the transactions cost of selling off excess capacity, it changes everything. Right. No, it's a great point. I, th- I think you've done a wonderful job explaining the actual economics of this. It's, it's more thorough than I've seen anywhere else. And you date this approximately to 1997 with eBay, don't you? Well, in a way, you could say that it dates from the souks in the Middle East 3,000 years ago. <laughs> I've heard people say, and I think this is a good argument, it dates from the first Sears catalog. Because the right. Sears catalog was the first virtual place that all they were really selling was reductions in transactions cost. If you wanted to sell stuff, you could go door to door, you could open a store, or you could have an ad in the Sears catalog. So Sears sold information about the product, they sold transportation, and they sold the service of clearing the transaction. So they would take your money and then give whoever actually had sold the product a cut of that. eBay compressed all of that into a much shorter time and space, but really it's an extension. So in some ways, it is a difference in degree, but the difference in degree is so large after 1997 that I say, yes, that's when I would date the, the sharing economy revolution is, is the introduction and beginning popularity of eBay. Right, because it's not just about selling more stuff, which is what Sears Catalog was about, but it's also, like you say, about renting out or sharing your excess capacity with existing stuff. The point is to be able to transform a liability that I have to pay to store into an asset. Now, it may just be I have some old junk that I want to sell, and that's what eBay is about. The real advantage is when I can make excess capacity modular and I can sell off pieces of it, not all of it. So if I have an old thing and I want to sell it on eBay, that's a one-off transaction. But if I have something that has excess capacity and I can sell part of that excess capacity but retain ownership to the durable asset that's producing the stream of services, then I've really done something. Right. And, and of course, the example, the obvious examples, like you point out, are, are automobiles and homes. And that's Uber and Airbnb. But in order to do that, they have to reduce three types of transaction costs. Can you explain your three T's of transaction costs? Yep. In order to make it easier to remember. Now, transactions cost is something economists write about, usually in another language, it appears, but it's supposed to be English. So I'm taking some liberties with the technical economics to try to reduce it to three categories that also start with TR to make them easy to remember because they're like transactions cost. So the first is triangulation. You and I have to be able to find each other. And if you've had an economics class, you know that usually we start with, well, this person A and he has a widget and person B wants to buy the widget. What will the price be? Well, most of the interesting stuff's already happened there. A has this widget. How did he meet B? How do they? How does B knows know that A has that widget? They have to meet each other. They have to find each other. They have to agree on a price. The second category is transfer. We have to make the payment, deliver the product. So physical distance is a problem. Uh, sharing a currency is a problem. And the third thing is, in some ways, the most important. The third TR is trust. That is, I believe that you're going to deliver the product. You believe that I'm going to deliver the money, and we're not going to rob each other. And in some ways, it's the trust that is the biggest difficulty, because 
we have that problem of what economists call asymmetric information in most markets. We usually solve it with something like repeat business or reputation, but in a system where you have peer-to-peer selling, because that's what the sharing economy really is, is you don't have these large intermediaries that are selling the product. All that Airbnb is selling is reductions in those three categories of transactions cost. I have an apartment. You want to rent the apartment. It's a pure peer-to-peer transaction. How can we trust each other? And it's interesting. The answer is old people like me, if we go to another city, we have to decide what restaurant to go to. I asked the concierge. Now, the concierge at the hotel is, you know, maybe sends me to his cousin's restaurant. No young person does that. They fire up Yelp. And on Yelp, you get a bunch of reviews from people you don't know. How can you trust them? Right, right. So ratings, and and eBay started that, too, as sort of ratings and reputation kind of replaced. Reputation is the right way to think of it. Reputation is something that in a small town you could rely on. And your mom, if you lived in a small town, used to warn you, this is going to hurt your reputation. It's like it goes down on your permanent record. Well, if you have an identity online, you value your reputation because that's all that people know about you. So if you do something that raises questions about whether you're trustworthy, that's harmful to you. And so what Yelp sells is information about other people's assessment of the value of restaurants. Usually if I'm trying to decide on a restaurant, I'll go and look at the average Yelp rating, and I'll look at the really worst ratings. The best ratings, the guy's mom probably put them up. But the worst ratings, you can probably trust. Right, right. You know, the other point that you make is that to to the consumer, to the buyer, all costs are transaction costs. Time, inconvenience, payment terms, and trust, just as much as the price of the good. Can you kind of unpack that one? Well, it's interesting that people often will stand in line a really long time to be able to pay a low price. So to an economist, the cost of buying something is the cost of standing in line and the money price that I pay for it. Or maybe it's the amount of time that I have to drive to stand in line in order to pay for something. So if I can find a way to reduce the standing in line or the driving, from the consumer's perspective, that's just as much a reduction in cost as a reduction in price. Now, people may have different opportunity cost values on their time. So a rich person is going to want to pay more to avoid standing in line. A poor person may stand in line a long time to get the low price. So people differ that way. But to a consumer, all costs are transactions costs because in order to buy this thing, I have to pay the driving. I have to pay the standing in line. If I buy something online, I have to wait three weeks for it. That's part of the cost. If you could deliver it more quickly, it doesn't change the product at all. But if you can deliver it to me in two days instead of three weeks, that's a valuable service. So the, once you start thinking in transaction cost terms, it does change the way that you think about the nature of economics because The blackboard economics that we teach in class, and I do this too when I teach an economics class, it's all supply and demand, and we talk about prices as if they were physical, irreducible things. But much of what actually affects people's decisions to buy or sell are the cost of the transaction itself, not the cost of the good. Right. You talk about how reducing transaction costs in the future, rather than, say, production costs, is going to be where the big entrepreneurial opportunities lie. And I think that's a great insight. 
It may be right. Remember, the difference between a professor and an entrepreneur is about five years. So <laughs> anything that I've thought of, an entrepreneur thought of five years ago. So what I'm really doing is reporting what I already see. But it is interesting that we have enough stuff. All the stuff is just in the wrong place. And the reason that it's in the wrong place is because of transactions cost. We can make much, much better use of the stuff that we already have. We don't have to make any more if we could just reduce the transactions cost of getting it into the right hands. Now, I always think of the stuff that I have in my closet, in my garage. I'm paying to store stuff. So I, I do make a prediction in the book, and that's that 50 years from now, people are going to look back on this era and be astonished at how selfish and dumb people were in 2018. Because we pay for everything two or three times. We pay for our car because it costs money, and then we pay for a big storage space to keep it in our garage at home, and then we pay for it in the, in the form of a parking space. If you're paying all that different storage cost for the car, imagine you didn't have to pay for a car, you didn't have to pay to store it at your house, and you didn't have to take up a lot of valuable real estate in cities having implicit storage for this car, meaning that we have excess capacity. You go there, you need to be able to find a parking spot. If a parking spot is waiting for you, it's most of the time being wasted. All of those things are just storage costs. Paying to store things rather than sharing them and using them to make money, I think is going to be something people are going to look back 50 years from now and say, what was wrong with them? Right, right. You talk about there's 50,000 facilities of self-storage with over 15 billion cubic feet. Uh, I don't know about your neighborhood, Mike, but in ours, some, a lot of times the cars are left outside because there's so much stuff stored in the garage. So much <laughs> so, valuable stuff stored in the garage. <laughs> well, Mike, we're up against our first break, unfortunately. This is just flying by. I knew it would be. This is just awesome. But, folks, if you'd like to contact Ed or myself, send us an email to ask TSOE at verisage.com. And now we want to hear from our sponsor, Leading Results. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Is your website just a brochure or is it your best salesperson? If your site is not the best lead generation tool you have, we should talk. We are leading results. We build websites and marketing programs that impact your bottom line. Using HubSpot or WordPress, we'll create a website and supporting marketing program that gets your business found, converts web visitors to leads, and provides clear tracking on what is and is not working. Learn about our team and approach to your success. Visit leadingresults.com slash TSOE to find out more. changed your life i sure have but have you ever read a book where the forward changed your life me neither hello i'm greg kite i wrote the forward to ron baker and ed kless's new ebook the soul of enterprise dialogues on business and the knowledge economy the value of this book is found entirely in its forward so when you buy it think of it as buying the forward and getting the rest of the book for free available now for download exclusively on amazon.com 
We're always talking business. Talk to an expert. Call now, toll free, 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. tuned into the soul of enterprise with ron baker and ed class to find out more about our show visit us on the web at the soul of you can also chat with us on twitter using hashtag ask tsoe now back to the soul of enterprise and we are back on the soul of enterprise with professor michael munger author of tomorrow 2.0 transaction costs in the sharing economy uh mike i want to make a couple of connections for you one i know you had a great interaction with the the person who is so kind enough as to arrange your appearance uh thomas casey on this and and he he was kind enough to send the email that you you sent about um you know wanting to have a beer with you and i just want to let you know that being as i am in a hotel room in Savane, seville spain i have had a glass of wine already and um so i'm going to consider this the first time we're having a having a drink together <laughs> yeah, here, here, here we go <laughs> so so no no we're, we're we're in good shape the other thing the other connection is my um brother happens to work for duke university so um i, I may come down to visit him and, and take you up on that offer so it'd be a lot of a lot of fun to get together so i, I look forward to it <laughs> anyway, I, I want to a- ask you a- a- about, the, and I know this is from another work of yours, but it, just to, to clear a couple things up, you have uh, this concept of you voluntary, am I saying that right, versus mm-hmm. voluntary? So this is exchange for, that is voluntary versus, well, it's sort of voluntary, but not really. <laughs> the concept of voluntarity has been problematic in philosophy for a long time, and you can see why it's important for economics. Um, If you were to ask, should a transaction be allowed or not, economists usually say, well, since exchange is voluntary, the state should not regulate exchange because both parties are being made better off. Well, if I hold a gun to your head and say, I would like your wallet, please, you could go through the comparison, all right, I can give him the wallet or I can be shot in the forehead. I'm going to go with the whole wallet thing. But it wasn't really voluntary because there was coercive force. Philosophers tend to think that a lot of times the exchanges that economists see as being voluntary aren't because philosophers think that people can be coerced by their circumstance. And it's interesting, there was a philosopher, John Locke, who wrote a relatively unknown little squib called Venditio, which I found and got back into print in a book that I edited, the Oxford Anthology of PPE. And the interesting thing about Locke's observation is that exchange to be voluntary, and I'm using modern words, but this was 1690, Exchange to be voluntary, there has to be many buyers and many sellers. Well, that's what economists call perfect competition. What if there isn't perfect competition? There's not many buyers and many sellers. Suppose there's only one seller. Maybe it's not quite true that I'm really voluntarily buying that water from you. If you're the only source of water and I'm dying of thirst, you have a lot of market power. So you voluntary is just that that prefix EU, so you social, or it it means well or truly in Greek. A, A truly voluntary exchange means that we both have alternatives and we're not desperate. And if those things are true, my claim is that 
you voluntary exchange should never be interfered with by the state. All you voluntary exchanges should be allowed because both parties are better off. And there's a kind of liberal autonomy claim there. I believe that individuals are the best judges of their own welfare. Now, if you don't believe that, then you have to believe that someone else is the best judge of your welfare. And there may be. My wife thinks she's a much better judge of my welfare than I am, and I usually go <laughs> along with that. But Good move. <laughs> yeah, well, we're, we're, we're both happier. No, nobody gets hurt. But the, the, it, it would be surprising if we could substitute other people's judgment for all the individual choices that we're going to make. And this kind of brings us back to the book. One of the central concepts in the book is permissionless innovation. That is, we have a system where someone can think of new ways to serve other people. I can come up with a new product or a new app that many people want to buy. Should I be allowed to do it? Well, the test would be, do people voluntarily want to purchase it? If they do, the state shouldn't interfere. The the, the, the you voluntarity of it means that permissionless innovation is going to allow dynamic changes in the economy that people can't foresee, but that they shouldn't try to stop. Okay. So the, the question then that I have following that is, uh, is uh, Uber surge pricing, you voluntary or voluntary, and then add on to that also, what about like hotel rooms during times of say a, a hurricane in, in New Orleans, you know, uh, in, in, in North Louisiana? Well, and the answer is pretty long, but let me give you the brief version of it. I think that's enough to be offensive. (laughs) 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 In an emergency, what we need to do is give people information that tells them the guy behind you needs this too. And ideally, I would want to know if the guy behind me needs it more than I do. So suppose we have a rule that says I cannot raise the price of gasoline in an emergency. So there's been a hurricane or an earthquake or something, and we have an anti-gouging law that says I can't raise my price if there's been a declared emergency. So I get to the gas station, and my tank is almost empty, and it was three fifty a gallon yesterday, and that means it still is because of the anti-gouging law. I fill up my tank because it's only 350 a gallon. Now suppose we didn't have an anti-gouging law and you would raise your price to $25 a gallon. Dang, I think $25 a gallon, that must mean that the people behind me need it too. I only get 2 gallons and then I drive inland to where there's not an emergency. The hurricane didn't do the damage 50 more miles in and I can get there with 2 gallons and there the price is 350. So that means that eight or ten people can fill up their tank instead of the, forgive me, eight or ten people can get two gallons rather than the first guy taking all of the remaining gas and then driving off without thinking of those behind him. So it is you voluntary in the sense that we're all being coerced by circumstance, but it's valuable to the guy behind me also. So if the market price, if all gas stations raised their price to $25 a gallon, there's still many sellers. It's just that the value of gas now is reflected in its price. Anti-gouging laws mean that you get first come, first served. People take too much. They take more more than their share because they don't get the information that the guy behind them needs some too.
Yeah, no, absolutely. That's a, a, a great point on that. Um, well, ch- changing subjects just just slightly. One one of the things that you mentioned in the book is that you know during this time when when we are in a market that is going to significantly reduce transaction costs, that you know change is going to happen, and uh, you know mar- the the market is going to reduce uh, certainly things to, to capacity, and that's going to cause some challenges, say with employment. Um, do you think that government should do something about the short-term effects of these things? So, like, you know, as we're in this transi- transition piece? Well, we're trying to do things about it now, and they're mostly having really perverse effects. So, as mm-hmm. you may know, City of Seattle raised its minimum wage to $15 an hour. So, pretty much any fast food restaurant in Seattle, if you go in now, what do you not see? People, you don't see any workers. <laughs> because it used to be that I would go in and I would look up and there'd be a board and I would say some of the words from that board. The person behind the counter would look for the corresponding words on the cash register. Just turn the damn cash register around. Because the customer can find the same words on the key instead of the big board overhead. But that means that I punch in those keys that is now transmitted to the people on the back line to make the food. I put my credit card in. Three people on the front line of McDonald's lost their jobs. Rental, if you rent a car now, instead of you used to have to stand in line and then you'd stand in another line to get your keys and you'd wait in line to do security, now your phone buzzes and says, here is a security uh, number. You punch that into the box, your key comes out, and off you go. So minimum wages tend to accelerate a process that's already happening. And that process was aptly summarized by Mark Andreessen in his Wall Street Journal article in November 2011, Software Eats the World. So the way to think of this, and it's disturbing, but it, it, it does tell you something about the way the world is going. Software is to the service economy as robotics and automation are to the production economy. We're used to robots and automation, big machines taking over jobs because it makes the factories more productive. But software can do many, many of the things that have been done in the service economy. And it's not just blue-collar things like working at McDonald's. Uh, There are expert systems that can take over from accountants or from doctors. There's all sorts of things that software is increasingly doing. You asked, is the government doing anything to try to mitigate that? Yes. We're using minimum wage laws and putting restrictions on entry. That's going to make things worse, not better. Yeah, so totally true. And we'll, we'll, we'll probably get to more of that in, a, in another segment. But I, we've got about a minute and a half left before our next break. And I want to share this with you. Uh, this morning at the, the conference that I'm at here in Spain, we had a, an IDC analyst talking about some d- different subjects. But one of the things that he brought up with is that the, the number one growth stock on the New York Stock Exchange since 2010 is, are you ready? Dominoes. <laughs> Okay. (laughs) And, and the reason for it ready, because 60% of Domino's sales comes from their mobile application. Why? Reduction of transaction costs. So there's another another example for you. It it, it is interesting that having there's 
briefly, there's three things that have come together. One is these little mobile GPS communication devices called, we call them phones. The other is the network of networks called the internet that connects them. And then the third thing is apps that allows them, us to use those things together. Domino's figured out there was no reason to have to deliver stuff to physical spaces. It is easy for me to have a phone and say, deliver it to me here in the park. That really changes the nature of delivery. Yes, absolutely. And by the way, the CEO of Domino's is is shooting for 100% of sales coming from the mobile app within the next three to five years. <laughs> so I'm, I'm noticing a theme here. You're, you're about to go to dinner. You're talking about pizza. You're having some wine. You're kind of a foodie guy. <laughs> I am a kind of foodie guy. Well... <laughs> <laughs> and we're up against our next break. want to remind you that you can contact Ron or me by sending an email to asktsoe at verisage.com. Of course, the website is thesoulofenterprise.com, where you can see show notes for all of our previous 180-plus shows, as well as previews to upcoming shows. But right now, a word from our sponsor, Abacus Next. future of online TV is here. View exclusive content from your favorite talk radio hosts and new programs that you can't see anywhere else. Visit voiceamerica.tv today. Results CRM, the award-winning Abacus Next product, is a customer relationship management solution that will automate your business processes, streamline workflows, and deliver consistent results. Cloud-enabled to provide access to your users anytime from anywhere. Grow your business in 2018 with the number one QuickBooks CRM. To learn more about Results CRM, visit ResultsCRM.com. Clouds come in all shapes and sizes, and the Abacus Private Cloud is the perfect fit. Abacus Cloud enables all the desktop apps you know and love while providing unparalleled security to your business. Cloud functionality gives you the flexibility to work where you want, when you want, and from any device you want. Don't waste countless hours managing IT. Take back your time. Learn more at abacusnext.com. Have you ever read a book that changed your life? I sure have. But have you ever read a book where the forward changed your life? Me neither. Hello, I'm Greg Kite. I wrote the forward to Ron Baker and Ed Kless's new ebook, The Soul of Enterprise, Dialogues on Business and the Knowledge Economy. The value of this book is found entirely in its forward. So when you buy it, think of it as buying the forward and getting the rest of the book for free. Available now for download exclusively on Amazon.com. From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network. You are tuned into The Soul of Enterprise with Ron Baker and Ed Class. To find out more about our show, visit us on the web at thesoulofenterprise.com. You can also chat with us on Twitter using hashtag AskTSOE. Now, back to The Soul of Enterprise. Welcome back, everybody. Here, we're here with Professor Michael Munger and talking about his book, Tomorrow 3.0, which we will post fully in the show notes and link to it. And, Michael, I wanted to ask you, you know, we talked about cars and houses being obvious areas to look to first for excess capacity. And, and then you give some examples about clothes in the book, you know, the a closet in the cloud because clothes have excess capacity. And then, of course, I think about 3D printing but then you say you wrote this, and this really 
struck me. You believe Uber is not a threat to taxis, but to Amazon. Can you explain that? Yeah, it's, it, I was trying to go for something that's not obvious and a bit surprising as an illustration of the logic of what I see in the sharing economy. Well, remember I said there's two things at work. One is the reductions in transactions costs that we can get from apps, and there's the three kinds of transactions costs, so triangulation, transfer, and trust. But then there is being able to sell excess capacity. It's in a modular way. So whenever I ask, if I give a talk about the book, whenever I ask, I say, what did Amazon start out selling? And everybody knows. The answer is books. Do you think of Amazon as a bookseller now? Well, no. What do they sell? And they usually start listing things, and that's wrong. What What Amazon does is sell reductions in transactions costs. And if you look at their balance sheet, Amazon makes almost all of its money from something called AWS, Amazon Web Services. They break even or make a little bit of money in some regions uh, selling stuff. But AWS is just a suite of software. And in fact, a fair number of companies license AWS directly for their own proprietary websites. And what, what AWS does is provide the three kinds of transactions cost reduction. One, triangulation. I can go on the website and I can search. They have a good search engine and it's broken down by categories. I can find the stuff that I want without getting frustrated and going somewhere else. Second is transfer. I can make the payment and I can secure the delivery of the thing and it's seamless. If I'm especially if I'm a prime member on Amazon, I can get that delivery extremely quick, extremely cheap, don't even have to think about it, all of the addresses, all the payment mechanisms already loaded into the software. And then trust. Well, I may have a reputation as a buyer on Amazon or they'll kick me off. The sellers also have reputation. There's a lot of free reviews there. And if there's a problem, I can always get Amazon to intervene. And a lot of times, Amazon will take care of the problem if one of their sellers has uh, acted badly. So it means that what Amazon really is providing is a way to find stuff, a way to clear the transaction, a way to get transportation, and a way to have trust. But Amazon is specialized in delivering a particular kind of thing called ownership. And the reason that I own something is kind of odd when you think about it. I don't actually want to have a power drill. What I want to have is two holes in a wall right now. But the easiest way for me to get two holes in a wall right now is to be able to own that. So I own the power drill and I store it in my garage. There's no reason that that has to be true. Suppose that instead I could pull out my phone and I scroll down to Uber. I start up Uber and then I scroll down to power tools and I pick out the kind of drill that I want. Uber an Uber, a driverless Uber car goes by a hardware store, an owner of a drill delivers the product after a little while to a smart pod in front of my house. I then go out and get the drill because my phone buzzes. I drill the holes in the wall. I put the drill back in the pod. It cost me $1.25 to rent it. That's much better than having to pay for the thing and store it. And then that's that Uber car, another Uber car, picks up the drill, goes somewhere else. There's four, five, six deliveries that day for that drill. You make back the cost of the drill very quickly by making it modular. The different parts of the services of the drill are split up. Well, 
Uber is the platform that provides rental services in the way that Amazon provides ownership services for almost anything. There's almost nothing that you couldn't rent and have delivered over Amazon. You could find it on a website. You could, so it's something like Uber Web Services. It could be UWS instead of AWS. And then the delivery service is just part of Uber. I have the GPS, so I know where to deliver it. I don't have to have directions. Already, my credit card gets paid. So Uber also does the transaction clearance, the exchange clearance service. And they have trust because they could list, just like they do with their drivers or their riders, reputation. So what that means is the big clash is going to be between these two business models, Amazon, which represents ownership, and Uber, which is the future of renting. And the only reason that we own instead of rent is transactions cost. Once there's a way to drive transactions cost down, there's all sorts of things we'd be much better off renting rather than buying and storing. It's only because I want access to the stream of services that a durable good represents that I own anything. Right. And, and, and I think that's a brilliant point. And I, I want to go to, let's say, the day after tomorrow 3.0 and ask you, what's a threat to Uber? Could it be blockchain, Internet of Things and autonomous cars? Because now I can find your drill and an autonomous car could pick it up and bring it to me and we could pay in Bitcoin or some type of cryptocurrency all verified on the blockchain and completely disintermediate Uber. You're, you're asking two separate questions and both of them are good. Um, one is about using the blockchain as a, 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 a blockchain system as a way of reducing both transactions cost and trust sorts of problems. Um, the other question is about having autonomous cars. I think Uber is not going to be a taxi company five years from now. They're going to move on to having autonomous cars or at least drivers that are thought mostly of delivery. So instead of delivering human butts, they're going to deliver all sorts of other things. And now you can get food, medicine. There's all sorts of delivery things that Uber is can do, that's going to accelerate. So I think that's actually the, the, the autonomous cars is going to help Uber. The second question that you raised, though, is isn't someone else going to think of an even better way of delivering things? It doesn't help. I think the answer to that question is no. It doesn't help unless you have a really secure way that people can trust. Uber's advantage is going to be a lot like Amazon's advantage because if I go on Amazon, I can see a bunch of sellers and there's hundreds of reviews. If Uber gets the head start in this rental as opposed to ownership business, then they're going to have a bunch of renters with reviews, and that'll be even more valuable because companies that sell stuff have reputations. But Joe Schmo in the suburbs who has rented stuff, it really helps me to know whether he can be relied on to rent this and not break it. Unless, and this is the other part to your question, the blockchain makes that whole problem go away. And I think we're far enough away from that that there's still room for, for Uber. But it is true that the blockchain, by solving many of these contracting problems in a way that doesn't involve a separate app, 
is going right. to is going to make something like Uber obsolete, but maybe not for ten or twenty years. There's a bunch of hard problems to solve with adapting blockchain to that sort of very quick contracting, unless we can shard the blockchain in ways that are reliable enough that we we don't have to keep because imagine you're right and we do use it doesn't have to be a cryptocurrency we could take a blockchain and connect it to dollars it doesn't matter that it's a cryptocurrency what matters is that the blockchain is a contract enforcement mechanism the problem is that if the density of transaction gets to the point where we have millions and millions of these per second which is the way that a rental system would work unless we can solve the, the problems of sharding the blockchain in a way that's also completely transparent, I don't think we can adapt it fast enough and there still will be room for Uber. Right, right. No, that's a great point. It does, blockchain is not scalable yet, at least not at that level. Um, th- you know, you talked to Ed about permissionless innovation and here in California, as you know, they just ruled that Uber drivers are employees. Don't ask me why, but our state's crazy. Um, and, and you say that's like saying Rotten Tomatoes makes movies, which I thought was a great <laughs> line. Are, are you worried, Mike, that, that regulation is just going to slow some of this stuff down and just gum up the works? Well, of course. That's the nature of regulation. It's always designed to help or protect existing producers. And so a story that often gets told is that the French and Belgian workers who wore sabots, S-A-B-O-T, the wooden shoes, um, who lived in northern France and southern Belgium, and they made linens in the 19th century, early part of the 19th century, and it's because they used hand looms. But then power looms were coming in, and so these workers would throw their wooden shoes, their sabots, into the the power looms and break them. So they were saboteurs. Sabotage is the action of, of committing industrial destruction to try to protect existing jobs. It didn't do much good because the economic logic is irresistible. On the other hand, it's also true that the cities of Europe in the 1840s were on fire because workers felt so unsettled. So while I think economically there's no way to prevent this transformation because the the logic of it, the efficiency of it is just too great, it is true that politically powerful groups are going to find ways to slow it down. Now, in the U.S., we have some advantages because we're a federal system, and any state that acts to slow it down is going to get behind in the race to attract new minds that are working on this problem. And California has a big head start. They've got Silicon Valley. But if they choose enough stupid policies and continue to (laughs) increase housing prices by having restrictions on the ability to grow stuff, you can't assume that California is going to be in the lead forever. People can go to Texas. They can go to North Carolina and the research triangle. So in the U.S., the problem that we have is limited unless these regulations happen at the federal level. But other countries are likely to do quite a bit to try to slow this down. The difficulty is that the more you try to slow it down, the more you're going to fall behind. The question is not how to prevent it, but how to reduce the impact on those people who, through no fault of their own, are being exposed to technological change that's at a scale and level of uncertainty that's unprecedented in the lives of anyone now alive. Right. I mean, one of the things I love that you write is, is that an economy is not designed to create jobs. It's it's there to create consumer surplus. And because of the focus on jobs, 
uh, you brought up the red flag law in the book, and I'm going to let Ed ask you about that in the next segment because I think it's one of the most humorous things in the book. But unfortunately, Mike, we're up against a break, and folks, we'd like to remind you, if you want to contact me or Ed, you can do so at asktsoe at verisage.com. Keep those iTunes reviews coming. We'll read them live on the air when you do. And now we want to hear from our sponsor and Ed's employer, Sage. Follow us on Twitter at VoiceAmericaTRN. Get the lowdown on guests, new shows, and your favorites. That's VoiceAmericaTRN. Wherever your business is headed, Sage has the cloud solution you need to enable mobile accounting and simplify financial management. Discover how moving your financial data and accounting processes to the cloud can transform your business. Cloud accounting software from Sage can help you make better decisions, drive faster responses, and gain greater control. That's cloud accounting for the journey. For more information, visit sage.com forward slash US forward slash SOE. There is no blueprint for running the perfect firm. No way to know the challenges you'll face. But your journey does not have to be an odyssey. Experience what it is like for every part of your firm to be connected. Experience a practice management tool where everything is just a click away. Experience Office Tools. To learn more, visit officetools.com. Have you ever read a book that changed your life? I sure have. But have you ever read a book where the forward changed your life? Me neither. Hello, I'm Greg Kite. I wrote the forward to Ron Baker and Ed Kless's new ebook, The Soul of Enterprise, Dialogues on Business and the Knowledge Economy. The value of this book is found entirely in its forward. So when you buy it, think of it as buying the forward and getting the rest of the book for free. Available now for download exclusively on Amazon.com. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. You are tuned into The Soul of Enterprise with Ron Baker and Ed Class. To find out more about our show, visit us on the web at thesoulofenterprise.com. You can also chat with us on Twitter using hashtag AskTSOE. Now, back to The Soul of Enterprise. We are back on the Soul of Enterprise with Professor Michael Munger, author of Tomorrow 3.0, Transaction Costs in the Sharing Economy. Um, Michael, I'm going to ask you a, a very obscure question that I'm sure you are the only person in the world that may have the answer to this, and that is, why is 19th century governor of Pennsylvania, Daniel Hastings, a hero? He is a hero, and he should be someone who you, you keep little pictures of with candles lit about being a sensible governor. <laughs> Of the, as I said, as we said in the last segment, uh, a lot of regulations are there to protect existing producers because existing producers feel real damage from innovation, and their employees vote. Whereas an innovation that five years from now is going to make a big difference and improve people's lives, it's hard for people to foresee that, and they also can't see the employment that's going to be created by that innovation. So what happened was that throughout the United States in the late part of the uh, 19th century, 
was that there were these new, really noisy, not very reliable things called automobiles. And they really were terrifying to the horses and the, the animals that lived in the field. Uh, a lot of times cows would just fall over in terror when one of these cars would go by and there'd be a, a backfire or something. Horses would stampede. If you had a horse in a in a, a city, a bunch of horses in a downtown part of a city, and a car would come through, there was a pretty bad chance that the horses might run off in terror. And so they decided they were going to regulate this. And so there were two different sets of rules. One was what's called the red flag law, and that's where our, our governor friend was involved. Um, the claim was that if uh, you were driving on a country road and you, even on a country road, that is where you didn't have any other traffic or you didn't see any other uh, horses, just to make sure that the horse would be able to see you far in advance, a person had to walk, and yes, I said walk, with waving a red flag in front of the car to make sure that people on horses or in wagons would know to avoid this car. <coughs> the more extreme form, <coughs> Pennsylvania didn't actually adopt this, but the more extreme form was that you were supposed to pull the car off into the woods and disassemble it. So that to take the top off and take the wheels off so that the guy and the horse couldn't even see it, which meant that you wouldn't make very much project progress. And it actually sounds a little bit like something written, written by our friend Bastiat about him having to stop every few minutes. <laughs> so th this legislation comes up and it, was, it wasn't just introduced, he said, his voice rising in outrage. It wasn't just introduced. <laughs> What happened was that the Pennsylvania state legislature passed this thing. And the governor said, I don't think so. And he used his veto pen to say that that would not, in fact, be legislation in the state of Pennsylvania. Bless his heart. I think we should all raise a glass in his honor. I will do so right now. All hail to Governor <laughs> Daniel Hastings of Pennsylvania. Oh, my gosh. I mean, it, it was it, I, it's funny. We're laughing at it, but... We still do it. <laughs> we oh, the, still the, do the, stuff the city like of this, Paris right? and the city of Miami both briefly imposed a restriction that said that there was a wait time for any Uber pickup for 30 minutes. That is, between the time I called Uber and got picked up, there had to be a 30 minute gap because otherwise it was unfair to the taxis because they suck. <laughs> That, that Have you seen the the, the, the South Park episode where they do the, the whole taxi thing and the one guy says, well, I guess we could like make our cars clean and be nice to our passengers. Yeah. Yep. No, the, the, the solution seems like, you know, y'all could suck less, but no, no, we're going to make Uber suck more. Oh, gosh. All right. All right. Time for obscure question number two. And I have to say that I, since I read this a couple of days ago in preparing for this interview, I have said this to just about every, anyone who will listen because it's such a great analogy. What does company profit and a giraffe's neck have to do with one another? What do they have to do with one another? Yep, yep, yep. The, no, the notion of, well, you, you mentioned that, that a, a, giraffe's, a giraffe has a long neck 
And we think that therefore a giraffe, does, do we think that a giraffe pursues long necks? And the answer is no. And yeah. the same thing is so with I, company I thought profit. you were telling me the joke and you were going to tell me the rest of the joke. You were actually asking <laughs> no, me no, a question. No, no, <laughs> <laughs> If someone says knock, knock, I say who's there. I don't go check the door. <laughs> that, was, that, was, that was the question to lead you into it. Because I, I think it's a fascinating and, and it is a dead on analogy. So if you wouldn't mind explaining it, thanks. Well, I'm not sure I remember it because you read the book yesterday. I think I wrote it a year ago. But, <laughs> so, <laughs> but the, the the interesting thing about we, – we often look at things and think that they must have been designed to have that function. And so the the Darwinian evolution says that things that survive are the ones that actually provide some kind of function – but you can't arrive at that by saying this would be better. So the innovations that take place in Darwinian evolution always have to be incremental, and it's a kind of a naive search space. But Lamarck looked at giraffes and said the reason that giraffes have long necks is that it would benefit them to do that. So the that's not as true in economics. We can actually try to imagine an alternative, and when we come up with something new, it can be because we're forecasting. So the, the nature of innovation is really different in economics than it is in biology. And I think that's something that's hard for us. When we think about innovation, it's hard for us to... Uh, it's hard for us to understand the implications of that. So Henry Ford famously said that if he had asked consumers what they wanted, they would have said faster horses. Now, once they saw cars, then they started making red flag laws. But the, Steve Jobs said that if you'd asked people what they had wanted for music, they would have said, well, better cassette tapes. It would, it, they can't imagine the, the MP3 player. So the the nature of evolution and change is really different in markets than it is in biology. Yeah, uh, exactly. And what, one of the things I think when you tell that story is you have this great line in the book where you say profit is the name of the reward that we offer to entrepreneurs for the creating value for others. And Ron and I have also had the privilege of having George Gildron, and he talks about profit being an index, uh, index of altruism. And so it's a similar comment. So please do comment, uh, share your thoughts on that, because I think, you know, we profit gets such a bad name that, you know, hey, if you're if you're if you're profitable, somehow you're evil. And this is just just a horrifying thought for, for me and Ron. Right. It is a horrifying thought, but I've actually come to be a little more sympathetic to it. So I actually at the Okay at the Association of Private Enterprise Education meetings in Las Vegas this year, I gave a paper called The Road to Cronyism. And it's modeled in a way mm. after Friedrich Hayek's Road to serfdom, where he said, if you take a step towards socialism and the planning of prices, you'll end up with a totalitarian state. Well, I wonder if, suppose that you are a CEO of a large corporation and it's in a mature market. You have a choice of hiring some more engineers to try to make your product better and cheaper, or you can hire some lobbyists to hire, to get, hire some senators to protect you from competition. At some point, it's likely to be more profitable to hire lobbyists than it is engineers. And so that's the germ of truth to the claim that profits may reflect something evil. But as long as profits are earned in the traditional, honest way, that is, I sell a product that someone wants to buy, then I'm with you. I worry that we 
are in a system where democracy is corrupting capitalism in the direction of what look like accounting profits are really just the rents that are accruing to uh, protection from competition. But the, the the basic claim that I meant that I'm I you, you took up is the one that I would defend, and that is that if I make something that someone really wants to buy, they probably would have paid three or four thousand dollars for it, and they only have to pay six hundred. Suppose that it's a, a you know a, a, an Android phone you can get for six hundred dollars, they would have paid four thousand. So I, the seller, make a profit of seventy five dollars. The consumer makes a, and I'm making air quotes, which is good radio, a profit of three thousand four hundred dollars. They would have paid four thousand. They only have to pay six hundred. The real beneficiary here is the consumer, but that's unseen. We don't see the fact that the big benefit is going to the consumer. So the accumulation right. of profits means that. I have produced benefits. I, in a way, have been altruistic. I have doubled the amount of benefits that the that consumers have, and I get profits as a reward for doing that, provided, and this proviso is important, I don't go over to the dark side and use those profits to protect myself from, from competition through the political process. Wow. Well, look, your answer to that last question is is awesome, and we could do a whole other show on it. But, Ron, what do we have coming up next week? We have the author of The Halo Effect, Phil Rosenzweig, on the show. Excellent. Well, I'll see you 167 hours, Ron. All right. Thank you so much, Mike. Thank you. Salt of Enterprise, Business and the Knowledge Economy, sponsored by Sage, energizing business builders around the world through the imagination of our people and the power of technology. Join us next week, folks, Friday at 1 p.m. Pacific. In the meantime, check out our full show notes with Mike Munger at thesoulofenterprise.com. Thanks for listening, folks. Have a great weekend. again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the voice america business channel for more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest please visit voiceamericabusiness.com the voice america talk radio network is the worldwide leader in live internet talk radio visit voiceamerica.com the views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the voice america talk radio network it's staff and management. If you're 85 or younger, would you like peace of mind and comfort for your family? We're Final Expense Direct with an urgent message for you. The average funeral today costs over $8,000, but the most you'll get from government benefits is $255. How will your family pay the difference? We can help. Our senior plans start as low as just a dollar a day and pay up to $30,000 for a funeral and other final expenses. 
Peace of mind is easy. There's no medical exam. You'll have lifetime coverage, and your plan can't be canceled as long as you pay your premiums. Call now for free information about our senior plans. Answer a few simple questions and receive approval right on the phone. Plus, call right now and we'll give you a discount prescription card for free. Call 800-569-3238. That's 800-569-3238. Again, 800-569-3238. Get the latest insights on disruptive technologies and trends that are impacting the digital economy. Listen to the SAP Digitalist Flash Briefings and take your business to the next level. Just add the SAP Digitalist Flash Briefing as a skill 